It's a narrative review of GSD-3. Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. Today we're discussing glycogen storage disorders, specifically GSD type 3, and I'm joined by two of the authors from a narrative review published at the end of 2020, Dr. Giuseppe Ronzitti in Paris and Dr. Alan O'Brien in Montreal. Hello, Giuseppe and Alan. Hello. Hi. Now, thank you both for speaking with me uh, this morning or this afternoon, depending on where you are. I'm going to start, as I often do, by asking for a brief explanation of the disease in question. What are glycogen storage disorders and, and what's different about type 3? Uh, well, the, the name, I think, say a lot about the disease because, in fact, these are a family of diseases where you do have accumulation of glycogen in different tissues. And of course, there are more than 10 diseases uh, in this family. And GSD type 3 is a very interesting disease because it's a, characterized by accumulation of glycogen, both in the liver and in the muscle. And this is a disease that is due to a mutation in uh, the branching enzyme, which is the enzyme which, which actually removes uh, the branches from the glycogen. And whenever you miss this activity, uh, what you have, in fact, is an accumulation of uh, glycogen in the cytosol. And uh, the inability of uh, using uh, glycogen results in uh, hypoglycemia because, in fact, they, the liver uses glycogen to actually maintain the glycemia uh, in the blood. And in the muscle, you do have an accumulation of glycogen that actually perturbs uh, the, the, the activity of the muscle. So with those clinical features, when are people going to see a GSD type 3 presenting and, and what features would they see? Would it just be hypoglycemia or would those muscle symptoms be giving them other problems? Well, so really it would depend on what age they wish you're seeing the patient in the pediatric age group. The classic textbook description would be a child that's probably infancy or maybe a few years old presenting with uh, ketotic hypoglycemia, hepatomegaly, uh, maybe some failure to thrive as well. And then, then you would be thinking probably GSDs in, in general. Of course, the, uh, the differential is much wider, but as the patients get older, uh, they may not have presented earlier on because there's really a wide variability in, in expressivity. But when they're, they're older, then you might expect to have onset of, of myopathic-like symptoms in the 20s or the 30s. Uh, either left ventricular hypertrophy or cardiomyopathy if it becomes symptomatic. And so these are two very different types of presentation of the same disease depending on age group. But then again, uh, you can also have rare presentations, uh, just isolated left ventricular hypertrophy. Certainly not the first thing you think about, but GSD3 could be on your differential there. And certainly uh, in the liver disease in some patients does progress to uh, cirrhosis and in some rare cases, liver failure. So in patients with unexplained cirrhosis and liver failure, GSD3 uh, could certainly also be on the differential as well. But then again, the, in the pediatric age group with a hypoglycemia that's ketotic in nature, there's certainly other differentials you can think about. Certainly, that is something that is of interest to me as a general pediatrician. Uh, I'm often asked to look at children who've come in with hypoglycemia. But invariably, that's a ketotic hypoglycemia. In most cases, that's just a child that has been starving and has been given sugar-free squash. But so what's going to make me think, could this be a glycogen storage disorder versus this is just a, another child who's been off their food for a few days? Well, the hepatomegaly is a clue. 
the recurrence of the symptoms after several hours, certainly in GSD type 1, you think three, four hours. It's, it tends to be milder in GSD 3, so you might say longer period before you have the hypoglycemia. The hypoglycemia itself might be milder, but the recurrent aspect of it associated with hepatomegaly, if there's other symptoms like failure to thrive, certainly uh, this would be a clue. And then you also would have to exclude other diagnoses. So if there's really uh, a an, an metabolic acidosis that's significant with it, you might want to exclude organic acidurias, acid lactic acidemia associated with GSD type 1. And then uh, depending on the, the level of ketosis, then you might also think of gluconeogenesis defects if there's recurrent hypoglycemia, uh, in which case you'd also see high lactic acid. So you would exclude those diagnoses as well. Uh, and then if you really still have a, a, a suspicion for GSD, in particular GSD3, nowadays the, the approach would be to send a next-generation sequencing panel that includes genes for various GSDs, unless you're really sure this is GSD type 3, in which case enzyme testing is still available in most centers, whether it's on, on leukocytes or on fibroblasts. Now, the muscle involvement is a really big part of the clinical phenotype in this disorder. You've talked about it in the paper in terms of cardiac and skeletal muscle. Why do these patients get muscle disease and what features do you see? Well, the thing about this, this disorder uh, compared to some other more liver-only GSDs is that the enzyme is expressed in muscle. That's triad in muscle, so cardiac and skeletal muscle. And so most of the symptoms in cardiac and skeletal muscle tend to be because of glycogen accumulation and vacuolation. Uh, that disrupts myofibrillar architecture, leads to fibrosis and fatty replacement. And then there's some part of the symptoms which wasn't as known before, wasn't as well described before, which are the dynamic exercise-related symptoms in, in those patients. Uh, it was felt before that GZ type 3 uh, caused a fixed myopathy uh, without exacerbation uh, with exercise. But we now know that patients can get an exercise intolerance, cramps, fatigue, that can be ameliorated with sugary drinks, your glucose pre-exercise, but it's certainly not as severe as we see in, for example, myocardial disease uh, or some other muscle GSDs. And that's because uh, the glycogen can still be uh, metabolized by uh, phosphorylase to some degree uh, until you get to a branching point. So there's some glucose residues that can be mobilized. So, so part of the muscle symptoms are the dynamic muscle symptoms are, are related uh, to impairment of uh, glycogenolysis, but most of the symptoms are due to accumulation of glycogen in the tissue uh, that can cause fibrosis and also in the heart rhythmic anomalies as well. So to describe this further, though, I would say that the muscle phenotype, which we used to think was more of an adult onset, we now know that it actually presents pretty early on. And, and in some cohorts, uh, young children as young as, as one or two years old already show some de motor delays as well. So more delays in sitting, delays in, in walking. Actual objectified weakness on, on neurological exam is rare, but it does happen. And then it tends to progress very slowly uh, and becomes certainly generally more significant in early adulthood. In the 20s and the 30s, that's when you classically see actual myopathy as a presentation. Uh, but the, the fact that it, it can occur early on is, is certainly a new development that we didn't know before and, and certainly would affect the care of those patients in the pediatric hospitals. In terms of the cardiac phenotype, most of the time it's silent. Uh, you'll see the diverse degrees of left ventricular hypertrophy or various other types of hypertrophy, so isolated septal uh, or other parts of the heart. 
um, rarely it well, not rarely it's maybe up to 50% of the cases you can see it becomes symptomatic with advancing age it can, can become a cardiomyopathy but most of the time it does remain silent uh, and slowly progressive as well so there was one cohort that showed a increase in 0.2 millimeters per year uh, in posterior wall thickness uh, so certainly it, you should keep an eye on it and and recommendations are to do echocardiographies uh, and ECGs yearly or every two years for those patients and the other aspect that we mentioned in the article is the uh, rhythmic disturbances so most of the time if you do an ECG you'll find changes that correspond to left ventricular hypertrophy but there was one cohort study that showed that 65% of the patients actually had QT prolongation. Uh, and we know that's associated with at least a predisposition to arrhythmia. So that should be kept in mind. Those patients, they should certainly be checked with an ECG yearly or every two years as well. Sorry, so just when you say that the skeletal muscle phenotype can present in children, even in quite young children. So if you've got a child complaining of fatigability and cramps, this would be in your differential. So certainly it would be, it might not be the first thing you might think of, of McCarlow's, of, of fatty acid oxidation defects. You might think of uh, muscle dystrophies or myopathies or other things as well first, because that's not the most common presentation in children. But we do know that if you have a child that presented with more of the hepatic phenotype in childhood, then you should not discount the muscle phenotype as something that's only going to happen later. You should probably screen them for that as well. But of course, if you have a child with, with muscle symptoms, it should be in your differential. Certainly not the first or the second thing in your differential, but it should be in there. And pleasingly, this is a treatable disease. And like many metabolic disorders, the current treatment is diet-based. Where are we now with treatment? And also, what, what does the future look like? Well, I'll let Giuseppe answer the, uh, the future of treatment. Uh, it, just to say a few words about the current treatment, which, as you say, is, is mostly diet-based with the first thing to be uh, to think about is to eliminate uh, hypoglycemia. So we generally give complex carbohydrate-rich meals scattered throughout the day with snacks to make sure there is no prolonged fasting. And we try to aim for high protein, at least in the older patients, at least at two grams per kilogram per day. But studies do show that there can be amelioration of cardiac and muscle symptoms if you go towards three grams per kilogram per day. And so, so that's the mainstay of the, the, the treatment, but other studies do show that there is improvement with, let's say, a ketogenic diet or ketone body supplementation. So these could be approaches as well as they give an alternate energy source for those patients. So, so that would be the general approach that we have now. Uh, and then I'll let Giuseppe describe what people are working on currently. When I started working on GSD3, and I am coming from an institute where we are doing gene therapy for rare diseases. So the idea was to do gene therapy. There was not that much ongoing, except I remember there was Valerian Therapeutics who was actually doing a, an enzyme replacement therapy for, for GSD3. And then that, that, that we started doing something uh, about AV gene therapy. But then the, I've seen in the, in the years um, that there are many, many companies coming in and that are starting to work on, on GSD3. And in particular, now there is this approach with the lipid nanoparticles with the RNA complex there with lipids, in fact, uh, that can be an interesting uh, approach for uh, the treatment of the hepatic disease in particular, but why not in the future, maybe also of the muscle disease. And then, of course, there is the, uh, the AAV gene therapy, which, of course, I 
advocate for, which in principle uh, will allow to to re-express the uh, the enzyme by a viral vector in in the different tissues, and um, and I can tell you that there are now more and more companies which are interested in this approach, so that they consider that the disease still need a a replacement therapy. So are you are restoring the uh, the activity of the enzyme in the cells that are missing the, the enzyme. Uh, this is particularly tricky um, because this, and this is a complex disease and um, you need to target at the same time liver and muscle and heart, of course, if you want to treat the disease. And the natural history of the disease is not that, uh, that well known, uh, except for some uh, work that we are involved in where we try to, in fact, uh, characterize the, the natural history of the disease from a muscle point of view more than just for a, from a metabolic point of view. Um, so to, to summarize, it's the, the RNA uh, strategies and the AV gene therapy strategies are the two that are most advanced so far for GSD3. And um, then there are, of course, the small molecules that are also coming for that. And I think this will be also an interesting approach. Uh, but f- so far, there is nothing published about that. You've said that AAV gene therapy is the most sort of advanced of the, of the current approaches. When we're saying advanced, is that at animal testing stages or moving into human trials? Where are you? No, that's uh, still at animal testing, but it's the only one which has been published so far as an approach. There are at least two paper uh, reporting uh, AAV gene therapy for, for GSD3 which means that there probably are more coming, of course, all at uh, um, animal model level. Um, yeah. One of the recent podcasts discussed the different models for disease. I take it there's a, there's a good animal model for GSD3, is there, that, that um, you know, tracks well to humans? Well, for GSD3, there are two animal models. There are mouse models, and there are at least three that comes to my mind. Um, three different, uh, which similar phenotype except for one which has no hypoglycemia. And then there is a dog model, which is also interesting from a clinical trial point of view. Uh, So a large animal, and this is particularly important and relevant for the gene therapy because uh, a large animal model would be more challenging for for the approach that will be developed. And um, I I think this is very good, in fact, for such a rare disease. In fact, to have both different small and uh, one uh, large animal model. And if we just return to the dietary treatment, will dietary support in this condition remove all of the complications of the disease? No, certainly we don't expect that it will remove all the complications of this disease. In some cases, we've shown there was regression of cardiomyopathy with dietary treatment, including high protein and giving other energy sources such as ketone bodies, we said, or uh, ketogenic diet. Uh, I think these would be that would be an extreme example one case of a regression or complete resolution of, of cardiomyopathy, I don't think it's feasible to completely eliminate them, certainly to control them, to uh, stabilize them, to slow down progression, certainly. It's quite a contrast. I mean, obviously, in many of the GSDs, the, a lot of the management is around carbohydrate supply. So uh, ketogenic diet seems somewhat counterintuitive. Yeah, certainly. GSD1 gluconeogenesis is impaired, which is not the case here. So you can use that to your advantage. And that would be by increasing ketone bodies as a secondary energy fuel and protein itself by allowing gluconeogenic amino acids to to fuel into gluconeogenesis. 
But the idea of reducing glycogen as well, and even complex carbohydrates, would be to decrease unnecessary glycogen accumulation. So you just give as much glucose as you need to, or as much complex carbs as you need to, certainly not much more, uh, and you let gluconeogenesis do the rest. And I, I, I can't recall um, from the paper if this was something that was talked about, but you've, this obviously is a condition that can present at different ages. In the patients who you see presenting when they're older, when you review their their symptoms and their clinical history, are there missed opportunities to diagnose these, these patients earlier? I think that's the case for, for many patients with rare disorders, genetic disorders in, in general, that unless they're brought to attention of the uh, metabolic specialist early on or, or a pediatrician who's familiar with those disorders, then, then it tends to be missed, unless it's very severe, in which case they're going to be referred from specialist to specialist, and it may take a few years, but you would expect the diagnosis to be made in infancy or, or early childhood. But we do see a lot of those patients that retroactively, as you say, we say, well, this diagnosis could have been made earlier, but it, it, the symptoms early on were milder. The patient was able to survive without the uh, specialized medical care, uh, and so certainly. And do you foresee that with the rise in accessibility of widespread genetic testing and sometimes untargeted genetic screening and direct-to-consumer genetic screening that you'll see more diagnoses? That's a possibility. Certainly, you might be aware of people debating the use of whole exome or whole genome sequencing in, in, in neonates as a form of screening. And then, as you know, there's a debate around what you do with all the uh, variants of unknown significance, what you do with the disease that may have a pathogenic variant, but there's a lot of variability and there's reduced penetrance. Uh, will you start treatment if there's detrimental effects to treatment as well? Uh, so that's an ongoing debate. I think if we ever get there, certainly there's going to be a lot more diagnosis made early. And I wouldn't want to, to trivialize your paper into a simple soundbite, but at the same time, if there is a simple take-home message from your work on GSD3, what would it be? Well, on my side... I think I'm, I'm, I consider GSD3 as a complex disease which requires complex solution, but we are getting there. So that's, that's my, my take-home message, really, that we, we really need to concentrate on this kind of diseases because they allow us to, to advance the technology that we are uh, applying to, to metabolic diseases in, in particular, but also to other diseases. And I think from a clinical point of view, I would say the key messages here would be that the muscle disease tends to happen earlier than what we once thought. Uh, and there's also dynamic exercise-related symptoms, which, which is a new development, at least in the literature. And then there, we didn't discuss this uh, today, but in the article, we do mention that there's the typical MRI muscle patterns that we see that can evoke this disorder and certainly tends to correspond to a clinical muscle involvement. And, and then regarding the cardiac disease, we, we know that there's a, certainly a predisposition to arrhythmia. And so, so that's certainly useful information for the follow-up of those patients. Well, thank you both for that. And um, thank you for bringing up the idea of whole exome sequencing as a, a newborn screening tool. We've done a podcast on that previously. We found that it wasn't ready for prime time just yet. You know, it's one of those things that, like you say, it raises sometimes more questions than it answers. Right. Uh, thank you both so much for that. If you're listening and you want to read more, go to the journal website and search for narrative review of glycogen storage disorder type three. And if you'd like to hear more from us with over 15 episodes on assorted IMD papers from the last year, just search for JIMD podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to hit subscribe. Giuseppe and Alan, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. 
And to those listening, thank you for joining us today and goodbye.